Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. A cool space story that developed this week, we have a new study that has confirmed that NASA has discovered water on the sunny parts of the moon and not just in the cold shadowed areas. Now this water is not in puddles or icy patches, but rather it's embedded in glass created during impacts on the moon. So the next step is to figure out how to mine this water and make it available to astronauts. For more on all this moon water, we'll speak to Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. So this is a particularly exciting finding for NASA, um, because if there is significant amounts of water sort of on the sunny parts of the moon, that basically means that NASA astronauts are going to be able to more easily access it, which is what you know they want. Because in order to have sort of a sustainable presence on the moon um, and the ability to sort of use it as kind of a gas station to jump off to other places like Mars or even farther into deep space, you you need to kind of be able to mine water from from the moon uh, to be able to create drinking water and rocket fuel and that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, NASA has the Artemis program. They're trying to send astronauts back to the moon by 2024. So this could mean a lot for that. So tell us specifically, though, now what we're learning about the water that they found, because My understanding is there was not a lot of water that they found, and it comes in a very different way. We're not talking about puddles of water or anything like that. That's right. Yeah, this is not sort of puddles or even, you know, caches of ice. What it's looking like is that it's actually uh, sort of discrete molecules of water that are kind of trapped in the lunar dust or maybe even, you know, kind of encased inside of of. Uh, glass that was created when meteorites slammed into the moon. So it's like a very, very kind of alien form of water, um, but one that scientists are sort of hopeful that they might eventually be able to figure out how to mine, although no one's totally sure how to do that yet. Uh, So what it is, if it's locked in this type of glass, it's going to take a lot more energy to extract this. What does a process like that look like? How do you mine water out of this glass or even from the soil if, if it's in there? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question and one that uh, I think a, a number of companies and NASA are sort of trying to figure out, like, just speaking from my reporting, like, people have a hard time mining on Earth. So if you translate that to somewhere like the moon, like this gets very sci-fi very quickly. So I think (laughs) that one of the main things that these companies are trying to figure out and what NASA is hoping for is that someone's going to figure out a way of actually being able to mine this stuff. And what was the study uh, overall that was done? Like, how how did they actually find out that these molecules were out there? Because uh, I don't know if we have a probe that's sending back uh, samples right now or anything. So how did they actually discover this? So this was using um, a flying telescope uh, called SOFIA. Uh, it's on uh, on a plane, actually. It's a repurposed plane that NASA uses in conjunction with a couple of other space agencies. And it's actually able to sort of fly up into the atmosphere and you can uh, see things that you can't necessarily even see with a probe. Like the way that they were able to get this signal was specific to the SOFIA telescope um, just because of the interference in the atmosphere. So it was able to kind of cut through that and see um, basically uh, the signal of water up there. 
And so what's the next steps now? If we're trying to get astronauts there by 2024, is this going to be added on to their list of you know exploration uh, things that they need to do? Or are we going to try to keep studying it with this uh, with the SOFIA observation? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the answer is kind of yes, <laughs> all of the above. Um, so NASA is definitely going to be interested in learning as much as they can about this water signal between now and 2024. So they have a probe called Viper that's going to go up to the moon at some point um, between now and the first human mission to sort of learn more about the state of water. And then, yeah, eventually, like once astronauts get up there, they will be looking for water signals in either the sunlit part or at their landing site, which is likely going to be in one of the poles. So it's going to be a really interesting time to kind of watch what happens with, with this discovery. Definitely. Very cool stuff. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. On the coronavirus front this week, we have a study out of Britain that says people with detectable antibodies for coronavirus fell about 27% over a period of three months over the summer. And it's called into question how long immunity lasts. But health experts say this is not a cause to worry. Antibodies tend to wane over time naturally. For more on what to know about this antibody test, we'll speak to Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at The New York Times. These British researchers have been trying to figure out how many people in the population are exposed to the virus. And so they've been sending out periodically these antibody tests because the presence of antibodies tells you if somebody's been exposed to the virus and been infected, even if they didn't have symptoms. So they did that a few months ago, and they've done it three times over the course of many months. And what they found is that from the first time they did it to this last one in September, the percent of people who tested positive for antibodies dropped from 6% to 4.8%. And that works out to something like a 27% drop. So that is what got reported and got everybody worried because it read like a third of people are losing their antibodies. First of all, this is a population-based study. So it wasn't the same people. So they weren't looking at some set of people three months ago and then going back to those same people and seeing that they no longer had antibodies. This is just a snapshot of people three months ago a new snapshot now. So that aside, it's also not very surprising that over time, people would lose some antibodies. And that's because when your body first encounters a virus or a bacterium, it makes antibodies because, you know, the infection is new and it needs all these antibodies to kind of fight the virus. But once the, that immediate infection is gone, that those huge levels of antibodies that are produced have to go back down just as a matter of sort of physical space, even in your blood, you can't possibly carry high levels of antibodies to every single virus your body has seen. COVID is not the only thing you're going to fight for the remainder of your life, basically. That's right. And you've probably seen, you know, dozens and dozens of rhinoviruses and other seasonal cold coronaviruses, common cold viruses, measles, God knows what you've been exposed to, right? All of those produce antibodies. And so your blood just can't have high levels of all of those. So what happens always is that those levels come back down after the initial infection, and they kind of go to some sort of steady state. And there are these memory B cells, they're called it. B cells are the cells that make the antibodies. And some small number of them are these memory cells, they basically remember what the virus looks like. And if you ever see that virus again, those memory B cells can produce antibodies pretty quickly within a matter of hours. So there's no need to have antibodies actually in your blood because those B cells can make them again if you need them. And that's something that 
the study really didn't show. They didn't look at, do these people still have immune memory? And also there are other cells called T immune cells that can also fight the virus. There are T memory cells, just like there are B memory cells. There are T cells that can actually destroy the virus. There's all kinds of basically immune mechanisms at play. We just happen to always end up talking about antibodies because they're the easiest things to measure, but they're far from the only things that your body has. Yeah. One of the other interesting things about this study is you mentioned how the government was sending people these tests to administer themselves. They were finger prick tests. They weren't blood draw tests or anything, something that was done in the lab. So the possibility that it could have missed somebody with lower antibodies, they might have still had some, maybe just not at such high levels was part of it. And then they did also say that there might have been something about, uh, you know, like asymptomatic people. Maybe they didn't have as high an antibody count as somebody who had the disease more severely. That's right. We know that people make all different levels of antibodies, just like they're all different kinds of people. Everybody's immune response is just a little bit different. Some people make a ton of antibodies. And that's usually the case if they've been really severely sick. Makes sense, right? You have really severe symptoms, so your body's fighting really hard. So you have a lot of antibodies. But if you just had really mild symptoms, you may not have had that many antibodies to begin with. And so, you know, when you see that decrease that I was saying earlier is basically normal, you may go below the level that this sort of crude test can pick up. You know, these tests are great for looking at population-wide prevalence, but in any one person, they can actually miss low levels of antibodies. The sensitivity is something like 84%, which means in 100 people who have antibodies, it would miss 16 people. So it's not crazy good, let's say. (laughs) Right. Well, it's good to know that we can kind of dispel some of this and and not worry people about thinking there is no lasting immunity at at all with the coronavirus. You know, as we're still learning so much about the virus as we go along, and I know we're waiting for vaccines, so there's still a lot yet to know about this virus. So, uh, But at least in the meantime, nothing to worry about as we go through this. We are still learning a lot about this virus, but I think it's always important to remember that it's a virus. We know about viruses generally, and there's really nothing about this virus that is biologically that different than other viruses. You know, it's more severe, but it doesn't behave basically all that differently than a lot of other respiratory viruses. So we know kind of what happens. We don't know how long the immunity lasts, but guessing from other coronaviruses, probably good chance it's at least a year. So I don't think we should panic quite yet. Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally for this week, we know that COVID-19 vaccine trials are currently underway, and we hope to hear some news soon about how safe they are. But what is it like participating in one of those trials? Beyond that, what is it like participating with your whole family? For this next story, we'll speak to Jackie Heidenberg. She's an investigative reporter with Columbia Journalism Investigations. And she's currently enrolled in the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine trial with both her parents, her sister, teenage brother, and 80-year-old grandma. Jackie tells us how it's going so far and why she feels that people shouldn't worry about the safety of these trials. Back in March, um, about two days, I think, before uh, first-in-human trials were in the United States, um, as things were starting to get much worse in New York, where I spend most of my time, um, I was feeling extremely frustrated and stuck, um, especially since I knew um, my sister was, uh, she's pre-med in college. She was doing research on uh, COVID-19 comorbidities. My mother works in clinical trials. My dad works in a hospital. And I was like, I'm a journalist. 
what can I possibly be contributing to this? If, you know, science isn't something I normally cover. And um, since my mom and dad both work in, you know, medicine and science, uh, growing up, I always knew about uh, what clinical trials were, how they function. And I figured, you know, if this is something we're going to start to be doing in this country, I would love to participate, partly because um, it might give me a chance to possibly be somewhat protected from uh, the coronavirus and to protect people in my family and around me, um, but also because they would need participants. So as soon as that opened up this summer, um, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Specifically, your mother is a clinical trial researcher, so I'm sure she had a lot of insight to maybe let you feel more at ease with going into something like this. Yeah, so she's um, more than just a researcher. She's actually a, um, a clinical trials liaison, but she's been working in this stuff for, I don't know, decades. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a house where we were always talking about, you know, the science of things. And, you know, I was always hearing about, um, you know, IRBs, internal review boards, and, you know, um, things like uh, ethical considerations and you know, these were just things that I that I heard all the time growing up. Um, and whenever I have questions about how these things work, it's very easy for me, obviously, to ask my mom, like, how how does this work? We'll get into some of those safety layers in a moment, because I think it's very important and very interesting as well. But uh, let's get to the actual you know, trial, getting the shot, getting there. How did all of that happen? Uh, my understanding is that the Pfizer trial is a two shot protocol. Yeah, so um, so the the trial began, or we enrolled uh, in it this summer uh, when, uh, so my grandmother doesn't normally live with us, but she was spending a few months at a time living with us, um, and I was home for a bit, and my sister was home. Uh, so what would happen is we would go, uh, we would drive to the uh, the clinic in downtown Orlando. Uh, you'd be waiting in the waiting room for a bit. They obviously, you know, will take your temperature. Um, and then uh, there's basically a lot of waiting around, especially uh, for the first injection, um, for people who can get pregnant, they will do a pregnancy test um, before the injection. Um, you have to sign a consent form, um, and there's a lot of, like, waiting in between. Um, they'll ask you questions about your health, and then, uh, yeah, then you, you get the injection, and then three weeks after the first one, there's a second injection, um, and then three weeks after that, or four weeks after that, um, there is a, uh, a blood draw. Did you get any symptoms from either of the shots? So after the second injection, um, I did have a very low-grade fever, um, but when I brought that up uh, to the uh, researchers, they were like, oh, well, that's technically the temperature that I had was like 99.8 at the highest, and they said that was actually lower than the threshold for what they considered a low fever, so actually they couldn't even record that. Interesting. Um, so it was very mild. I, I mean, I felt I felt gross, like I, you know, flu-like symptoms, I guess, but for one day exactly, by the next morning, I was completely fine. And that's um, a, that's so. important to note because these studies are done with placebo. So going into it, you don't know what you get. I, I'm sure a reaction like that probably lends you to believe you, you got the actual vaccine. How about other members of your family? Did they get any symptoms, anything like that? Well, my grandmother is convinced that she got the placebo because she said she felt absolutely nothing whatsoever. Um, I think my brother had reported a headache, but our family also gets headaches. So also that's the other thing is like, even if you may have had symptoms, we can't really attribute it to receiving the uh, trial drug uh, because we don't, there could have been something else going on. You know, maybe we were had a cold that day or something. Um, so, I mean, obviously we don't know, right? It's a double blind uh, placebo controlled study. So I, I don't really know if I got the vaccine or not. All I know is that the day after the second injection, I had, a, I, I felt 
Um, but it doesn't mean that I got the, the vaccine. I could have, but right. it doesn't mean that. What do they tell you after you get these shots? Do they uh, say go out and live your life like normal? Do they say continue wearing your mask and social distancing? What's the kind of guidance that they give you? Because obviously, you know, there's a few things going on in why these trials are happening. They want to make sure that it's safe and effective. That's why you go back and get the blood draws to see if you have antibodies. But you could also contract the virus as well. What do they? What kind of guidance do they give you as you leave? I don't think that there was a particular recommendation as we leave, but they definitely did not say, you know, take off your mask and have a big party. Um, so, um, and I think that would also probably mess with some of the controls of the of the trial um, to tell people to change their behavior. Um, so, no, I mean, I'm still, you know, wearing a mask when I'm in, when I whenever I'm with anybody pretty much because I, I live alone but whenever I leave the apartment um, I obviously will you know wear a mask and stay six feet away even from my close friends so um, no very much uh, back to life as normal during COVID. Uh, there's been a lot made obviously about the politicization of vaccines you know the president was saying we're going to get one by election day really does, that's not going to really happen um, but it, really on all sides there's also a lot of skepticism around vaccines in general from a lot of other things that happened before COVID-19. But as you went through this process, you're looking at how there is a ton of safety measures that that, uh, these companies go through. Uh, And uh, as you mentioned, review boards, all this stuff. Tell us a little bit about that and and kind of your enlightened understanding after going through this trial now. So with this vaccine particularly, I know for a fact it's, it's in the consent forms, but I also knew that going in. Uh, that there is no live virus in the vaccine. Um, So you're basically going to either be injected with the uh, mRNA of the uh, spike protein of the virus, which will, it shouldn't make you sick because it's not the active part of the virus, or you'll be injected with saline. So there's really no, you're you're not going to develop COVID from enrolling in, at least in this uh, vaccine trial, um, at least not directly related to the injections. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there about this. Um, the fact is, though, that there are so many regulations in place. It's not and it's really not up to, you know, the president to uh, to say when we're going to have a vaccine or that we're going to have it by a specific date. Um, the CEO of Pfizer said, um, I think, two weeks ago that they were hoping to have the um the efficacy data by the third week of November. And then uh, I think Dr. Fauci said that they might have uh, the safety data, um, I think, in a few weeks after that. So, I mean, it is the, the timeline is obviously speeding up and we might be able to get emergency use authorization for this vaccine by the end of the year. Uh, but it's not really up to, you know, politicians to decide when that happens. It's up to the scientists and the people that are in charge of the protocols for the trials. Well, I mean, it's great to know that you are healthy throughout this. Your family also continues to be healthy throughout this. Thank you for doing that. There's about 30,000 participants in this trial, and obviously there's other trials ongoing as well uh, through all this. But like I said, thank you for doing this for the benefit of all the rest of us. Jackie Heidenberg, investigative reporter with Columbia Journalism Investigations. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Oh, 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 o